Welcome everyone to Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren, and I'm joined today by Carla Garrick. Carla is an advocate of liberty, specializing in localized volunteerism, self-determination, and how responsible human action can lead to peace and prosperity. She's President Emeritus and current chair of the Free State Project and lives in New Hampshire with thousands of fellow freedom fighters. In 2014, Carla won a landmark case affirming the First Amendment right to film police encounters. She's appeared on WMUR, CNN, and Fox News, been featured in GQ and Playboy, been quoted in The Economist, and has discussed libertarianism on the BBC. She's also the author of Ecstatic Pessimist, a collection of award-winning short essays, short stories, essays, there, there's the book, uh, and speeches. She has twice run for New Hampshire Senate, garnering 42% of the vote in 2018 against an 11-term incumbent, 11 terms, geez, and believes in 2020, the third time will be the charm. So maybe it will be. Carla serves on several nonprofit boards, follows a keto lifestyle, practices yoga and shooting, very importantly, and plays a game, a mean game of Scrabble. So don't challenge her to Scrabble. Anyway, you can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Carla uh, Garrick. I'll put all the links to this below. You can uh, go to CarlaGarrick.com. You can uh, go to the Free State Project website. I'll put links to all this stuff below. That was a long introduction, but Carla, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. <laughs> so um, I guess before we begin, I don't know that our all of our audiences familiar with the Free State Project at all. Years ago, I was paying attention. I actually looked at land in New Hampshire during the debate about where to go before they had taken the survey. Um, so, uh, but I don't, I don't, I think I'm unusual. I don't think everyone knows what it is. So can you describe what the Free State Project is? Sure. So uh, the Free State Project is a movement to attract libertarians and liberty lovers to the state of New Hampshire. I'm trying to explain it as move to New Hampshire and do something for liberty. That's the shortest version. <laughs> um, basically, it's been around now for 15, 17 years, probably. Uh, initially, people debated where they should go. We looked at a lot of different states uh, that all seem to have similar things in common, fairly low tax, low population, you know, where there was still somewhat of a spirit of liberty. And back in 2003, the, the then people, this actually preceded me a little bit, took a vote and New Hampshire won the vote. And so everyone said, all right, we're moving to New Hampshire. <laughs> the then governor, Craig Benson, was like, woohoo! You guys come out this way. We'll open, you know, welcome you with open arms. Uh, he was a one-term governor. I'm not sure of those two things. <laughs> they may be related. Those two things, you never know. <laughs> related. Um, but then, you know, so basically, we've been slowly moving out here for for. I mean, more than a decade now. I've been here since 2008. So the thinking was. There are enough libertarians, but we're so dispersed across geographic areas that it's very hard for anyone to get traction. I mean, I think the number one guy we saw was Ron Paul. You know, he got around two million votes. Uh, so the idea was, hey, if we concentrate in one place, maybe we can actually affect change. Now, of course, New Hampshire is the live free or die state. Not the best motto in the middle of a pandemic. So I like to say live free or die, but rather not the latter. Um, <laughs> it's still know, a great motto. It's still a great motto. It really is. Um, I'm, I'm leaning towards live free and thrive. 
I think that has a better marketing sure. spin. <laughs> but really, in a nutshell, the idea is, hey, if you're passionate about liberty, if you think that, you know, things might be moving in the wrong direction and in this country, um, and if you acknowledge the fact that really changing things on a federal level might be too hard at this stage, um, and you're interested in really just building something new, then, you know, we want you to move to New Hampshire. We want you to come here and join the fight for liberty. And, um, and I hope people will, because I don't think things are going to get better soon. Sometimes I'm accused of being a pessimist because uh, I... I have this love for, I'll call it the foundations of America, and many Americans who share that, uh, that idea of freedom and individualism, but not really a lot of hope that at the national level, this, things are going to play out in a way that uh, is commensurate with those ideals, to put it mildly. Um, so what were, you know, you said... Uh, low taxes, like were there, were there were there demographic considerations? I mean, I assume the goal is to take over the politics of the state at some point, right? Moving to, you know, you didn't all move to California, for example. Right. So, so yes, I mean, demographics do play into it. Uh, you know, taking over a state sounds maybe a little aggressive. So I certainly see it as trying to build alliances and allies with, with the Granite Staters who are already here, who do believe in that live and let live ethos. Uh, you know, our enemies will say we're coming in to try and take over the state, but either you believe in democracy, in which case, if we can get 50% to agree with our side of things, then that's fair. Or, you know, or you don't, in which case, you know, it's a free for all. Right. So why we chose New Hampshire in the end, there is a there's a great independently made movie that people can find on YouTube. That is the 101 reasons uh, sort of why New Hampshire was picked. But I think the top ones are, you know, there's no sales tax, there's no income tax on a state level. Those are two really big things. And, you know, we know a state like Connecticut that used to be quite prosperous and then 15 years, 15, 20 years ago introduced an income tax and has just become another, you know, sinkhole uh, economically as opposed to, you know, places that don't have it. So no sales tax, no income tax. Uh, there is a international border up with Canada. We have a seaport. Uh, you know, it's a deep sea seaport. Uh, I think that's important. I personally like the idea that we have a nuclear reactor out here that is still commissioned and able to build again. So energy, potable water, great homeschooling community, and truly that live and let live ethos. On the political side, New Hampshire actually has the third largest legislative body in the world, in the English speaking world. So our state house representatives is 400 members, state reps. So they represent about 3,000 people. So you actually know your state rep. Wow. You have his cell phone number. He only gets paid a hundred bucks a year. Oh, <laughs> so that's it truly cool. Is. So he yeah, has to have so an actual job. He can't just make politics his career. 
Right. And and it takes away some of those incentives. Right. So it truly is a uh, citizen legislature. And then our Senate, which is what I'm running for, is 24 people. And the two bodies have to work together. Every bill in New Hampshire has to go to committee with a public hearing. So it really still is very sort of old school uh, in terms of the towns and localism. Every town has its own town meeting with its own town budget and literally hundreds of people People get together on a March winter day and they sit there and they fight about the line items in the budget if you're so inclined, right? So it's very participatory. So for those of us who are sort of grassroots activists and people who do want to make a change um, and to use our own personal human action to do that, this is a good place to do it because it still seems possible. You know, people come, they run for office, they run for school boards. Um, they, you know, some don't do any of that. They just vote for their friends. You know, we have uh, lots of free staters who've now been elected to office. You know, someone like me keeps trying. Maybe one day I'll get in. Um, so, you know, there are a myriad of reasons and people can go to FSP.org if they want to sort of see more or learn more. But really, um, I think it's just the idea of getting a community together where it also, because it's a community, then sort of informs all of us to, you know, do better, try better and, and work together to actually get something done. I think a lot of people in other states just it's it's frustrating and it's almost impossible to make changes because you know you you're the one guy at the town hall yelling about something and here you know you might have 10 or 50 other people who feel the same way so okay and do you was it did people move to particular um counties within the state or was it just anywhere in new hampshire go so it's anywhere in new hampshire uh we have several different regions i mean new hampshire's really like I sometimes like to think about the state as, oh, if this was a tiny little country, how, how would it be, you know? And if it was a tiny little country, once again, we have that border, we have the deep sea port, we have free trade zones, we have the airports, we're not far from Boston, we're not far from Quebec, but we don't have that sort of big city living. But what we do have is we have a mountain region, we have the seacoast region, we have the lakes region, we have farmland. So really, you know, if you looked at it as this tiny little little country. It's got a little bit of everything for everyone. I personally live in Manchester, which is our biggest city. Uh, it's huge with like 120,000 people. Um, you know, it's a small, I moved from New York Are City. Are there elevators it's a small, in Manchester though? That's the thing. question. <laughs> Kidding, yeah, I'm you know, kidding, it's, 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 <laughs> Manchester's, you know, people call it a city, but, you know, you can find parking downtown, no problem. Right. Um, but, but everyone's kind of gone where their appetite is. For the most part, what I advise people if they're coming out, first of all, come out a few times, you know, come, we have events all the time. We have Pork Fest that just passed. Only libertarians to actually do an event, so yay us. I was going to say, even um, the Freedom Fest canceled, but but Pork Fest continued through the COVID stuff. No one stopped them. Yeah, 
and and honestly, I mean, I have to give a shout out to the property owner because I think, you know, I know with Freedom Fest where I was supposed to be on three panels, I was supposed to debut my book, you know, like I'm 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 a little bitter about the cancellation too, but of course they're beholden to the hotel contracts. And so, you know, it just becomes this morass of of legality, insurance, you know, just all that crap, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. And so with us, you know, we've had this relationship with this business owner for for uh, we've been doing Pork Fest for 17 years and we've had them at his location for 15 of those 17. So we've definitely developed a relationship with him over the years. And it was really the, the fact that he was willing to say, hey, if you if you're willing to do it, I'm willing to do it. You know, notwithstanding he's $75,000 in property taxes for this huge campground, right? I'm, I'm pretty sure there were some economic incentives for him. Yeah. But really, a, a shout out to him. And then a shout out to everyone who said, you know, free people move freely. You have, everyone has a different appetite for risk. If you're scared, concerned, cautious, any of those things, this is not the event for you. Please don't come. The people who did come, we had, uh, you know, we had masks available. We had hand sanitizer available. We had social distancing bracelets available. I think I saw a total of five people who actually did that. Uh, so far, so good. No one's gotten sick. Um, so I think it was just a a sort of celebration or an acknowledgement that, you know, as free people in America, you know, we should be able to do these things regardless. You know, Woodstock took place in a pandemic. Yeah, yeah. You know what, you know what uh, has struck me as odd, not odd, but it seems to have gotten worse over the years is this this idea that like, well, I have a different opinion about the risks, so therefore my opinion should be the law. And it's like, I, I, what I, what's great about events like that is this reminder that, hey, we all make our own decisions about it. If you are really risk averse, you stay away. If you're a little bit risk averse, maybe you come with a mask and social distance. And if you're not, you know, it's that personal responsibility aspect that seems to be lost. Um, and it's amazing to me how angry people can get that there's other people who are willing to take risks that they're not willing to do. Um, and have events, but you know you, you and, brought... and not go ahead. Just go ahead. that they're that, uh, that they're unwilling to. You know, if we have different levels of risk, that's fine. But as you say, the issue comes in when you want to force your lower level of risk on higher risk takers, right? And that's where the the real there's a a, a unbalance, I think in in the country at the moment where everyone kind of feels like government's gotten so big. So like whatever the government says, that's what it is. So the stakes are really, you know, everyone's like very vested in, in everything because they're looking at the problem the wrong way. And one of the things I truly love about the free state project and what we're doing in New Hampshire is that we're solution based. We're problem solvers. We're builders and doers. So we're people who are saying, look, I mean, for me, I moved 12 years ago. I signed up 15 years ago. So 15 years ago, I was like, stuff is kind of this is not the america i moved to from south africa you know like i saw it happening and so i was like what can i do in my life to one improve my quality of living the quality of living in new hampshire is incredible it usually ranks first second or third uh very healthy population a little 
you know, veering towards the elderly. But up here, we've had less than 400 COVID deaths. So it's a healthy, outdoorsy, you know, uh, people who mind their own business kind of thing. But, you know, we want people who are like, yes, you know what, there are problems, but they're not insurmountable. We don't have to go down without a, a fight. And let's bring you know, dynamic people together and let's do something about it. And and so that's the exciting part, I think. Yeah. You know, you brought up something that um, I know a lot of people have wondered about, which is you've brought up as as a plus uh, the your proximity to Boston, for example, and other places. But I know people are sometimes worried about mass holes as, as how I hear them referring to like what's to prevent New Hampshire be, from suffering the fate of let's look at states like Colorado where um all of the leftist Californians who utterly ruined this state you know they're like locusts they feed on the state they ruin it with their laws and then when it's all dried up they move to another territory and like where's a great spot and they go and they ruin that um what's like Let's say New Hampshire is starts to be more uh, successful and things are great. You've got, you know, you, you you keep regulation low and you keep the government out of people's business, and that la- naturally leads to prosperity and a and a uh, more attractive lifestyle. What happens when all the Bostonians just start flooding New Hampshire? How do you prevent that? We build a wall. <laughs> 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 no, I'm kidding, of course, half kidding. Um, but I mean, I think there are several things that can happen. Um, you know, I personally, I serve on the Foundation for New Hampshire Independence. That's a 501c3 educational nonprofit that actually talks about the advantages of peacefully, you know, declaring independence and kind of creating our own little country. So building a wall, you know, it's a far fetch. It sounds, I appreciate it, you know, maybe strange to some people, but I could make a cogent argument and maybe I will in a minute about that. But um, I think it's, it's, partly cultural. So so how do we prevent things like that? One is you do lead with uh, live free or die, right? You kind of say, hey, New Hampshire is this different place. And no, we're not going to provide those services. Because we have that sort of uh, very localized control for a lot of things. I think that as long as we have enough people who are still willing to show up and to say, hey, no, hey, no, hey, no. Um, I think another solution that we don't always talk about or think about is is business solutions, right? We want entrepreneurs to come here, business people who come with good ideas. So like something I'd love to see over time, um, I say it uh, kind of as a joke. I always say government, there's an app for that. And I kind of believe that, right? Because, you know, people will say, who will build the roads? And I'm always like, but who builds the roads now? And they're like, the government. And I'm like, Yes, but it's literally physical people and companies and stuff. So we would still have roads even if we didn't have, you know, this overreaching government. So we could still have people who plow your streets, who pick up your trash, who do all of those things. I mean, why don't we have Uber for trash? And I only pay when my bin's full and I pay a small amount and I don't have to pay someone's pension for 40 years. Once they've retired, you know, You're so, so there are the mafia, but, right. 
And so, <laughs> so, so, you know, th there's a combination of things. Um, I would also say I might not have all the answers to that, but one of the beautiful things about, uh, I think the way liberty minded people's minds work is that's okay. That's what the market is. And one of the things we do in New Hampshire and what we have done is I think this is becoming a marketplace for ideas, right? So we have some people who are like super into the politics part. I run for office because I'm not sure if that'll be the path. Um, I hate politics. I will be very good at it, but I don't want to really do it. But, I, but I'm willing to run and to see. And if I get in, I will take that seriously and I will do my duty. But like that's sort of like ah, I'm doing that just cause. But then I'm much more interested in the sort of cultural, the artistic, that kind of stuff. So we're creating this marketplace for ideas where some people are like, yes, politics. Some of us are like, no politics. You know, some people will say they won't even vote for me and they're my friends because right. they're that principle. They don't vote. Right. Right. They don't vote. Right. That's a problem. I would like to change that, but I do understand where they're coming from. But then, you know, we have a lot of crypto people. So we have a lot of people sort of in the new banking spaces and that kind of stuff. So when, when, you know, so that's an opportunity. And then we have the agorists and the entirely outside the system people. And the beauty of it is those ideas get to compete. Uh, we get to experiment. We actually get to see over time as we continue to do this, because this is our lives, right? We're actually living our lives here uh, to be like, oh, that's working. Oh, that's not working. Oh, that's a terrible idea. Ooh, no, we don't want those people. You know, like whatever it is, like we figure it out and you tend to go. I mean, here's a concrete example. Ten years ago, I'd be like, escape to New Hampshire. That brought a certain flavor of people here that necessarily perhaps, you know, didn't quite have their lives together. Now, you're welcome to come. Everyone's welcome to come. We don't want violent people or bigots or assholes, excuse my language. No. But for the most part, anyone can come, right? But what I want to bring and what I'm using my human action for is let's bring people who are like, excited about life and really want to like build something which I personally call the Yankee Hong Kong and I'm like let's let's do it let's build this place where hopefully government is just looking at us with benign neglect which is pretty much how Hong Kong came about right the British were like yeah whatever there was some commissioner and he's like, like yeah let them yeah. do what they want <laughs> Right. And so if we could have a government that has benign neglect and then for the most part, we're just building this incredibly dynamic state, then yes, even if those people move in, if we're not providing those services or those things that they demand, and if we've created the culture that is, you know, New Hampshire men and New Hampshire women, and we're like free people, you know, we're free staters, then I think we can stem that tide. One more thing is... And, and this is very telling, I think. You know, I always say, look, there are 49 other states where people can go be socialists. Are we not literally allowed one state in which no, we can apply free market principles? <laughs> they literally will say to you, you're not allowed. And I'll tell you why. Socialism does not work when there is a counterbalance or an example to right. say there is a better way. So there really is a, a concerted effort now over the years that we've been here. We've gotten a lot of attention suddenly, and there is a lot of 
commie money flooding into the state to fight what we're trying to do. And so we genuinely also do need reinforcements. Right. That makes sense. I'm glad you brought up the the culture because, you know, something that we talk about on our show quite a lot is there's the famous Andrew Breitbart quote that uh, politics is downstream of culture. Um, we also like to talk about culture being downstream of philosophy and the, the, the necessity of building a solid foundation in, well, I'll, for lack of a better term, I'll say enlightenment found, found philosophy and, and then the culture to support it. And along those lines, um, you know, one of the most important things is schools. Can you talk about what the, the schooling is like? What are the next generations of New Hampshireites? I don't know if they're, are they New Hampshireites? <laughs> what are the next generations going to be? What are they, what are they like? How do you deal with the indoctrination that has basically taken over government schools? Yeah, I mean, that is a really, really big problem. I mean, I think it's probably one of the most fundamental issues we face in terms of changing culture and philosophy. Um, I personally think that that is the one opportunity that this uh, codeness, COVID weirdness, madness, you know, whatever we want to call it, has presented for us here in New Hampshire. Um, First of all, we have a very strong homeschooling and unschooling community. There are opportunities in terms of, uh, there are a lot of free staters who work on school choice. Uh, so there's a very vibrant school choice culture here already. Uh, we were very fortunate when, when the weirdness happened that the uh, commissioner of education, Frank Edelblu, who lost to Chris Sununu, who's our current governor, by less than a thousand votes in the primary, uh, Frank is very, he, he comes from a software background, very agile, smart guy. Uh, he homeschooled all his kids. And so the second this happened, they closed the schools and they went to remote learning. Now, I'm not going to pretend that it was like seamless, but it was, we couldn't have had a better guy in there to, to really try and push for that. So I have spent more time than I should on Facebook. Every time I see someone who's like, what are we going to do with our schools? I'm like, keep them closed. Let's right. keep the, the schools closed till 2030. You know, it's for the children. It's the only way we can be safe. Yeah. It's the only way, right? So I see all of this as an opportunity to genuinely like, I mean, the number in my head was if we could get 25% of current parents to not send their kids back to school, that would be a huge win, right? So I think there's some appetite here to start to be like, uh, we've worked on legislation, uh, we as activists, not as the FSP, just, you know, human action, uh, we've worked on legislation to try and make any money that the money follows the child as you know, almost like vouchers, but a little different. So then what I would love to see is uh, home tutoring. You know, who knows? Once again, it gets back to that experimentation, allowing people to do what they think is gonna work uh, for their kids. But, you know, we we also have an opportunity, I think, with, with all of this. Uh, one of the things that just, I mean, it just flamoxed me was when they went to remote learning, they still were delivering meals to children who were getting free lunch. So I guess there is such a thing as a free lunch. <laughs> wow. Not for um, everyone. <laughs> Not for everyone, right? And Someone's it's not truly free, of course. <laughs> but, but you know, when I heard that, okay, all the kids are remote learning, but now we have these school buses going out and delivering food to the kids, I was like, 
why don't we just make it a, a frying pan plan, okay? So on a Monday morning, you get a dozen eggs, a frying pan, and a pat of butter. And by the end of the week, you should know how to make yourself lunch. I mean, is that too much to ask? No, in fact, it's it's a, it's a kind of Montessori-esque approach to it, which is like, look, uh, this is a life skill. You shouldn't need to have your lunch delivered to you. You should be able to make a sandwich or eggs or whatever. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so education is, I think, I agree 100% with you. I mean, it really is one of the areas that we need to... Uh, to address, but I do think we're doing a pretty good job here. Uh, we also, to be fair, we have incredible private schools out here. You know, some of all the Tony sort of fancy pinky up schools uh, are out here. Uh, we have, uh, you know, in terms of colleges, of course, Dartmouth is here. We have St. Anselm, a private Catholic school. Uh, so there is good schooling to be had, too. And generally on the metrics, if we care about federal metrics, New Hampshire schools do pretty well. Um, you know, so for some people, understandably, they don't want to homeschool or they don't want to come up with something else. Uh, but I think people are ready to start to have the conversation about what is school supposed to be? Because you've seen a lot of parents now actually admit that, oh, school is just daycare. And I'm yes. like, well, if it's just daycare and no one's going to read and write after, you know, 12 years, and if we're paying, I don't know, thirteen to $20,000 per child, so that's $250,000 over their, their, you know, education, we could just buy them each a house. Right. Um, we could, you know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't make sense what we're doing. We're investing in frying pans for 250 k Yeah. That's a lot of eggs, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they could eat for a while on on that. Um, yeah, so I this is this is interesting, and it's it, you know it's one of the things, um, obviously that we're you know very concerned about is the is the education, and there's not like a good place in the country that I know of. I'm I'm just kind of wondering how you guys are dealing with it. Um, how how beholden is New Hampshire to federal purse strings generally? I don't really know the economics of the state, but one of the ways that the federal government tends to get its way with states that are wayward wayward usually means more libertarian uh is is they threaten to withhold funds so new hampshire used to be a net federal taxpayer so we paid in more money than we got out uh it's one of my favorite things to sort of explain when i'm talking about could we be a more independent state I don't think that's probably going to hold true after all these COVID bailouts. New Hampshire did receive $1.25 billion. That is a lot of money to come into our state. I mean, our, our state budget is 12, 11, 12, 15 billion, depending on, you know, who's, who's in charge at the time. Uh, so we've always done a fairly consistent job of being like, you know, trying to say no, uh, I mean, it's been interesting because I think one of the the things I, I'm not a Trumpian at all, but you know, I, I do watch what he's doing and and I do appreciate some of the things he's done, even just from a messaging standpoint. I think the words "deep state" 
and fake news have done more for the libertarian movement than anyone else has done over the, you know, 50, 70 years. I'd love to see him add control freak to that list <laughs> and then, you know, sort of lean into that as, as a messaging thing. But, you know, one of the things he did really well with all the COVID stuff was to just say, I'm putting it on the states. So it seems like there is a sudden appetite. You know, you hear California talking about secession, possibly breaking into three different states. I feel really sorry for anyone who's in San Diego because the water isn't going to get that far. So if you're (laughs) like-minded, move to New Hampshire now. (laughs) But, um, But, you know, we're hearing a lot more of these conversations where, I think people are starting to realize, ooh, this whole federal thing. So maybe like a little more state state stuff. So I do think, uh, I mean, we are beholden. Everyone's beholden to the federal government. They also have that huge threat of violence over all of us. Um, But, you know, we used to be pretty good on it. I, I haven't crunched the numbers recently, but I think we're probably not. You know, everyone's on the everyone's on the federal dole now. If you're handing out, you know, four four to six trillion dollars, right. if you print enough money and give it away, then yeah, yeah, um, and you may still be net contributors uh, on like an absolute scale, like by value of the money that you've given. Uh, but you know, if you've got a printing press and you can print four trillion dollars, then you can overwhelm in actual paper dollars <laughs> anything that yeah no it's it's i you know i i i hope we're wrong to be honest because i think there's just there's a lot of hardship that's that's coming in, in the way now and i think a lot of people aren't going to understand a few people understand you know inflation as a as an invisible tax you know even here in new hampshire we never when i moved here in 2008 we did not have homeless people. We did not have panhandlers. There were no services. And you know, as well as I do, you get more of what you subsidize. So when we had the opioid crisis, we started subsidizing treatment. And then we had a huge influx that created a, a new problem in New Hampshire that had never been here. I did not see a panhandler in New Hampshire until three years ago. Wow. So, you know, you mentioned Trump for a minute. If I, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people that are in our audience would agree with this, his his biggest selling point is really his verbal battle in the cultural war. Not really anything he's doing one way or another. Um, but he, like you said, he, he talks about fake news. He calls out the deep state. Um, he says things, and I think, by the way, this is why most of the mainstream hates him so much. It's his policies aren't dra- radically different from anyone else's policies, but his language is radically different. Um, and, and you know, it got me to realize we, you know, libertarians. Just I'll use the small L libertarians. One of the I'll say notoriously known things about libertarians is like they're never on the same page with each other. They're all individualists, and it's very difficult to get them to like all agree and do anything. And so. Um, you know, when we look at what's happening in the U.S. right now, one question that I've got for the Free State Project people is um, how much how much on the same page are the Free State Project folks with respect to the culture war? Like, is there a lot of does everyone kind of recognize this is a this is a neo-Marxism? This is a form of neo-Marxism that's taken over or or are there woke 
uh, libertarians fighting for social justice in New Hampshire? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, for the most part, before COVID, I would have said we were all on the same page. Okay. Uh, of course, unable to speak for 20,000 people. I can speak for myself. But someone who's been in leadership with the organization for a long time, we've all heard the term herding cats. You know, we've had our little schisms and factions and all of that stuff. I think that's very natural. And I also think we make a mistake as libertarians to pretend that this is a unique challenge to libertarianism. You know, I run as a Republican and I watch their nonsense, you know, from the sidelines because I have no vested interest there. So I just kind of watch it like a train wreck. And it's equally ugly and ridiculous and silly and stupid and all of that. So I think we should not lose sight of the fact that that is genuinely part of the human condition. It's not something you'll see as much in the democratic side because there is this woke lockstep neo-Marxism. So we do have a social justice uh, faction. I mean, I myself would even say, you know, my background, I am a lawyer, but I also have an MFA in creative writing, my book. <laughs> um, you know, and, and definitely, you know, I would say I came from the left. And so I have empathy with that sort of idea of, of having empathy for humans, which sometimes as libertarians, we don't sell it that way because we I think almost instinctively are like, well, duh, that's obvious. That's what individualism is, is I respect me, you respect you, and we're cool, right? So it's built into it, but we do have to explain it more. We have seen, uh, I, 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 I'm in a, you know, I don't know, like a 700 comment thread today on Facebook, because I dare to say, if you want me to wear a mask, I want you to lose weight, get eight hours of sleep and eat. <laughs> Are you ready, Karen? And oh, my God, I thought I was just I mean, I was really just trying to point out the hypocrisy of some people going, I'm going to tell you what to do with your body. But don't tell me what to do with mine. I will tell you, it's not pretty. And most of the infighting there is us. You know, like it's definitely it's 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 not really. I mean, sometimes I'll make the progressive left really mad and they'll come at me. But but this is us. So I do think it's an opportunity, though, because. No one who's fighting with me is fighting on principle. Everyone agrees that there shouldn't be a government mandate. So beyond that, um, then it becomes an issue of persuasion. And I am always open to being having my mind changed. I'm not like lockstep. I'm not no masks because of this or whatever. I That's not how I operate. I'm just like, show me the science, show me the data, persuade me one way or the other. But unless I'm personally persuaded, I'm going to do what I want. Right. It's, you know, and it's not even in a free society. And I mean, actually, like a minarchist, like totally. Well, I'm an ANCAP. So fundamentally, that would be the freest. But even in like a minarchist society, uh, it's not clear what the rule quote rules will be. There would be rules for masks if it was an issue, and those would be determined by businesses and people individually. And like they would have, there would be a kind of consensus, at least among factions in an area, about what the risks are. And and you would. And, and here's the thing: if I personally, at this stage, had if I knew one person who had it or who had passed from it. 
Here in New Hampshire, as I mentioned earlier, we've had less than 400 deaths. More than 85% of them were in long-term care facilities. There is no genuine risk. And I find masks disgusting and demeaning, and I yep. really don't want to wear one. If I lived in New York City still, and I had to take the subway somewhere, I would wear a mask. That makes sense. But there's different things in different geographic things. Um, so we can't do this one size fits all. And if I say I'm not going to wear a mask here, then like I had to go to the bank now for something and they had a mask policy. And I was like, OK, but then they also had because it's a bank. They were like, take off your sunglasses and take off your mask so we could take a photo of you when you come in, I guess, so that I you know, I carry a gun as well so that I don't rob the bag. And and I was just like, no, I'm not doing that. They didn't have a person there. And I just kept walking because I'm like, look, you're already asking me to do something. It's private property. I will do it. I don't want to do it. I'm doing it under duress, uh, but I'll do it. That's private property. But here's the thing. They don't get to own the public space for one group of people's appetite for risk. That's not how public space works. And if we want to fix that problem, let's privatize as much property as we can. Yeah, that I mean, that's the ultimate answer is like people ask about what do you do with public property? And I, I, my answer is usually sell it. Uh, right, let's sell those statues. That would solve that problem as well. Right, right. So um, I, want to, I want to touch on a couple of things that you said. One of them was, um, you have alluded to secession. You said you're involved in this uh, group. I forget the name of it, but there's this group in New Hampshire that considers it. Um, how popular is that idea at all? And is it realistic for New Hampshire? So um, surprisingly popular, although we haven't done a survey in, in a while, but the last actual stats I have was just post-Brexit. And the union leader, which is our you know statewide uh, newspaper of record, uh, did a, a, a questionnaire or a poll the day after Brexit was voted on. And they asked if, uh, if New Hampshire, uh, wanted to be free from the federal government, uh, how would you vote? 42% of respondents, and there was over 1,200 people who responded, said they would vote for a free New Hampshire. So I thought that was pretty encouraging. Wait, wait, is this a libertarian publication or is this just like a general publication? No, this is a this is a uh, staunchly Republican sort of very you know I mean it was online so that probably does skew a little in in, in sure. people like you know younger people more you know in our favor um, and I certainly shared the hell out of it but yeah. um, but then a group that I have no affiliation with um, did a, a similar one in the same week and they also got 42%. And that was like the 603 Alliance or someone else, you know, we're not even really connected. So that 42% held pretty strong. I have an anecdotal example. Um, I work a lot with the ACLU of New Hampshire. They're not great on everything, but they're pretty good on things I care about, privacy, surveillance, police state stuff. They've helped me on cases. Um, and so I was at their annual fundraiser and it was a, it was just after Trump it must have been because, you know, they, I mean, I think their fundraising went up like 40%. Right. They just, you know, there was this huge reaction, right? So let's say there were a thousand people in the room. So when they were giving their talk, you know, they, they would do sort of lefty issues, uh, Planned Parenthood, and only half the room were like excited. And then they did something about 
guns, I think, or something. And like half the room was excited. And then they mentioned these uh, illegal, unconstitutional border patrol stops that have been popping up all over America. And they did do one up in the North Country on the Canadian border because, you know, oh, the Canadians are coming, the Canadians are coming, right? Um, and when they mentioned that they had done, uh, they'd fought back against that issue, the entire room was unified. And I thought that was very interesting because that was sort of a very New Hampshire strong sort of, you know, mentality. So I do think there is a genuine appetite for risk and uh, I'm sorry, an appetite for independence. Right, right. And I think that that um, is something we should be leaning into. I'm definitely going to bring it up more in, in my Senate race. Uh, one of the ways I've been trying to explain it a little bit is um, I'm a big sci-fi geek, and um, there's always, in any sci-fi movie or any sci-fi book, there's this one planet that everyone goes to, right, where they go, they get new ammo, they get their car, you know, their ship fixed, they meet in a bar, there's every it's, planetary... It's Switzerland about outer space, there's always some place that's yes! like, yeah... Yes, that is it. And I'm like, why can't we be that? Like, you know, just like Switzerland, just like Hong Kong, we can just be this sort of neutral territory. I would love to see for us, for uh, for the future, we were very disappointed in, in uh, I call him Flununu now, but Governor Sununu's response. Uh, we really wanted everything to be advisory, and then I would have worked really hard to make people do the right things. But then it became, you know, executive orders. He closed the state by uh, by decree, reopened by committee. These were all bad decisions. And what I would like to see, because I believe. Um, uh, the, the best outcomes flow from liberty. So if we lead with liberty, we're, we're going to get the fastest, best outcomes fastest because we're allowing people to compete and experiment so that we can figure out what's going on and then everyone can lean into whatever the right you know, solution is. Right. So I would love to see, because we don't know what's going to be happening over the next few years, there may be a second surge, there may be a second lockdown, there may be some new disease, they may try to make this new normal and all of that. I would like to see a New Hampshire first kind of policy. I would love to see New Hampshire open for business. Anyone who wants to stay open can stay open and we will take the Massholes money. We will take the Vermonters money. Uh, if people want to escape to New Hampshire to come stay in our beautiful resorts and on our lakes and hike our mountains, you know, tourism is our backbone. Why wouldn't we provide that if it's voluntary and no one who doesn't want to have an open hotel doesn't have to have an open hotel? Right. Right. So I, I, you've, you've also touched, you, you mentioned the ACLU and something that's concerned me about the ACLU because I've been, I was a, a fan earlier, but it seems in the last few years, at least at the national level, the ACLU has been converged upon by social justice warriors and they've, they are opposing free speech in cases and they are, um, they seem to have abandoned the individual liberties, uh, foundation upon which uh, they were found I mean, they were founded they were known for uh, have you have you seen that what's your opinion about them and are you still working with them is it different on the state level what what's that like I mean, it's definitely different on the state level and it is different from issue to issue I don't feel as libertarians who really have um, 
you know, I'll, I'll be friends with anyone on a single issue if, if they'll work with me and we're trying to like solve one problem. I, I don't feel like I have the luxury to to be like, oh, I got to reject all of you because right. then, you know, you end up and it's just you. Right. 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 Um, but I have seen and I agree with you that there has been this sort of. Uh, dismantling of the civil liberties, you know, they're sort of forgetting some of their stuff. And I think free speech is the number one one that I'm concerned about, right? We, we're seeing the deplatforming, the cancel culture, all of those things. And as someone who, who grew up in apartheid South Africa, and as a white woman, I mean, it wasn't half as bad for me as it was for black people, obviously. But it was a police state, you know, and we had newspapers where words were blacked out in newspapers and you would just kind of read stuff like a scavenger hunt because you try to figure out, you know, who was doing what to whom, where, with what kind of weapons, right? <laughs> and so free speech is so fundamental to a free society. And the fact that they don't want to entertain our ideas because they can't win because they're wrong. Right. <laughs> so they're like, oh, you're not allowed to say that because it I hurts no my argument. head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, so here I do work with them on, on single issues. Um, I am also troubled by the fact that they did start doing all this huge fundraising and that they are now using it as a pack and they are endorsing candidates. They are, so they have become politicized and it's not the organization it used to be. I, I didn't donate this year by way of example. I, you know, I worked with them on a case last year when we tried to stop the surveillance cameras in downtown Manchester. But, you know, right now I'm just kind of watching a little bit from afar. I would love to see if they send out a questionnaire. I'm certainly going to fill it out. And I feel like since they have worked for, with me for 12 years, if they don't endorse me, that would make me kind of miffed. So maybe that'll be the test. <laughs> yeah, they, they may ask you to sign a social justice pledge first and apologize for your whiteness. And if that happens, uh, if you don't do it, they may not endorse you. Huh? You know, I'm African-American. That's true. You are technically African-American. I love it. <laughs> nice. So let's talk about the police for a moment because you, one of your, uh, one of the things for which you're known is that you were arrested in 2010 for um, filming police officers in public and then you were involved in a landmark case. Can you talk about that? And then I kind of want to talk about cops in general. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I mean, very briefly, it was just, it was a late night traveling situation. I was actually following another car and literally did not know where I was going. And, you know, one of the things as a libertarian I love is technology, right? So I have to remind people this was pre-commonly uh, used GPS and pre-commonly used cell phone footage, right? Both of those things have vastly improved our lives and probably saved more marriages than we know. GPS, thank you. Um, so I was following this other car. So the cops stopped us and said, oh, you should go. We're just pulling these other guys over. And I was like, well, I literally don't know where I'm going. I'm following them. So I'll just pull into this parking lot over here. Long story short, uh, my camera was not working. It was a physical video camera. Um, they did not like my uh, attitude, I guess, uh, because when the officer came to... Um, you know, he came to my car, they, they called out squad cars. And so he came and he was like, you need to give me your license and registration. And I was like, 
do I? I'm not, you know, driving. I'm just parked do here. <laughs> you know? uh, and, and, and so it was like, you have 10 seconds to comply or we'll break your window. I mean, it escalated. You know, uh, one of my favorite lines from the deposition was uh, they, they actually did the whole trick where they do the handcuffs and they, uh, they were very tight at the booking station. And I complained and they came over and they made it tighter. You know, like 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 things out of like movies you've seen, right? right? And and I was pretty shocked, but being the person I am, I was like, okay. Uh, so what happened was when when I was leaving the station, they had taken my video camera, and they didn't give me a receipt. And I was like, well, I'm not leaving here. They were like, we're keeping it for evidence. And I was like, okay, that's fine, uh, but then I need a receipt to prove you took my camera. It's right. brand new. I got it like four days ago, you know, kind of thing. And they were really just like, no, then we're charging you with wiretapping. So they charged me with wiretapping in a retaliatory fashion. Of course, they dropped the charges against me immediately. Um, I'm still proud to this day that I instructed my lawyers that day at court. I'm like, you go to the judge and tell them to reinstate the charges. I want to fight this. And of course, everyone was like, who's this crazy lady? No, we're not doing that. So I sued them in federal court. We took the case. It took four years. Uh, we took it all the way to the First Circuit, which is, uh, you know, the, the circuit right under the um, Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a decision uh, that followed Glick, which was the original one from the Boston Commons, where they said, OK, you're allowed to film police officers during the day in this public space that has this uh, known sense of First Amendment activity, uh, the state was making the argument in my case, well, there are different rules that apply late at night at a traffic stop in, in Weir, New Hampshire. And I was kind of like, really? Is there a difference? Does the Constitution not work at night or in the dark? Or So... Um, so I'm very proud that, you know, I had great lawyers. They One was a free stater, one was a local. They both really, uh, uh, you know, believed in the cause. And so we, we took it, we fought it, and we won. And it's a landmark case for two reasons. One is the camera didn't actually work. The card was full, and I'm useless with tchotchkes. So, like, I just actually ended up holding it. So always remember, even if you... Uh, if your phone's not working or if you don't have whatever it is rigged up, just hold up your phone. It puts everyone on better behavior. Yep. And we know statistically it will actually help police officers to act better. Um, and then the other thing I'm very proud of with the case is it um, it means they don't have qualified immunity in cases where you've have the First Amendment right to film them. So one thing that's important is probably don't interfere. And I think we're going to see more cases that come out to say what is interference. But assuming you're not between them and whatever is happening and you're just being a witness and sort of, you know, watching someone, I don't know, suffocate someone under their knee while they plead for their lives, say. Yeah. you know, and, and that genuinely is why we are winning on this issue of police accountability is for the first time in history, we can prove what people have been saying for millennia. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's been police abuse since there's been police, you know, and so we can prove it now and they can't hide it. They can't lie about it to the extent they have in the past. And so uh, I encourage everyone 
everywhere. If you're a liberty person, if you see a police encounter, film it. Be a witness. Don't interfere. Don't whatever. But even if it's like you're driving, you know, and you see a traffic stop, if you have the time, pop out and just it's until they they wear the body cams and then also actually make that you know, actually accessible and not just save it for when they're trying to cover their asses. Um, I think there's, there's a real duty on us as informed citizens, as informed people, uh, you know, to, to just use this wonderful tool we now have to keep things transparent and accountable. Yeah, I mean, if you accept the argument that the police are a proper function of the government and that they're there to help uh, enforce laws that are somehow just and agreed upon, which is the premise we'll assume most people accept, uh, there's really no argument against wearing a body camera constantly. Like, that's, uh, that should be a thing, right? (laughs) Like, they're in our service, we should be watching what they're doing. Um, Right, And, and, and I'm shocked by this idea that people are like, but you know, especially with the qualified immunity, right? So people are oftentimes surprised when they realize, oh, police officers are held to a lower standard than ordinary citizens. And as you and I know, you know, we're often told uh, ignorance of the law is no excuse. But what qualified immunity means is ignorance of the law is no excuse except if you're the enforcer of the law, then it's an absolute defense. So they get to go, eh, we didn't know it wasn't, you know, we didn't get the, we didn't know it was illegal. We didn't know it was legal. And it's like, we're not allowed to say that. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've been, I have had some mixed uh, feelings about qualified immunity because um, the if you read the origins of it, it, some of the origins kind of make sense in some of the original cases where it was like, oh, well, like, you don't want the cop, like, you don't want the family of a bad guy who actually was doing something bad to then sue the cop because of some innocent thing that happened. Because people are sue happy now, and right? can get away with stuff. So there's, there's this, like, sense of, like, oh, well, it kind of makes sense that he shouldn't be subject to these kind of lawsuits. But it's gone kind of the other way, where it's used now just to protect um, protect them from, from things that they should be liable for. Um and I, I actually, I, this is why I want to talk to you about the police a little bit more because I have gone back and forth on the cops generally. I <clears throat> I was kind of very well. I was pro police for a while. Then I was very anti police. Like all police are bad. Like get rid of the police. Right. I, I would have been holding like the defund. That would have been me. Defund the police. Get rid of them. Um, <clears throat> and then this defund the police stuff actually happened in the most recent stuff. <clears throat> and you know, there's cases like the George Floyd case where it's like okay, there's there's egregious activity. Um, But then there's other cases uh, in which I look at that having trained with firearms and with a lot of police, and I go, well, that was actually a totally justified, reasonable thing to do, and you're scapegoating the the cop because you don't like cops, generally. Um, And so I've kind of tempered that a little bit, and now you've got the the defund the police out there, people, and my knee-jerk reaction is, well, I don't like them. They're a bunch of Marxists, so I must disagree with their policy. so we must not be doing that. And then I had a conversation, this is a long intro, but then I had a conversation yesterday with a really close friend of mine and she she brought up a question that I hadn't asked myself. And she said, well, think through your life, have the police 
ever helped you? And I thought, that's a really good question. And she said, well, first of all, has anything bad happened? Well, yeah, we've been robbed. Like, yeah, like the bad things have happened. Have the police ever helped? And I thought, actually, no. They've actually never helped me at all, ever. And she said, me too. In fact, she had been, she was beaten up by Antifa and uh, no help. In fact, they kind of worked against her. Um, and, and then we started, we're thinking about all this unrest. And her husband was on the phone and her husband said, well, the police are gonna let the rioters riot, but if you go LA Korean style and you try and protect your establishment, guess who they're gonna come after? You. Um, yep. and, and it occurred to me that I think what's happened over the past 20 years is 20 years ago, you had some older police who were more, constitu I'll say constitutional minded, like more liberty minded. And they've mostly retired and the good police have gone and there are very few actually good police left, especially in the urban centers. And, you know, when I ask myself, all these horrible laws that we oppose, all this police state stuff that we're worried about, all this authoritarianism that we're worried about the Marxist left enforcing, Who's gonna enforce it? It's gonna be the police. And I think the right has this, I think the right is largely living in this fantasy of the past where they think Andy Griffith is gonna lay his gun down and not fight them. But I don't think that's true. And I wanna know what your opinion about this is. Um, so I think looking at it from a solution perspective first would be that competition creates better outcomes. And so maybe what we could see instead of having just, you know, it be this defund the police or pro-police or whatever, why don't we once again get back to that idea of freedom, which means experimentation. And so maybe we can, um, maybe we can break that monopoly on the violence that the police currently have and that we know the the unions certainly have. And, and I think the unions are a giant factor in how bad things are. I think another problem that we see is just the training that the police receive now. We know that a lot of veterans are coming in and being taken up into police forces. We know that the police have been militarized. We saw here in New Hampshire, we fought really hard against a whole bunch of Bearcats. I personally have fought against the drones and the surveillance and, you know, 1984 is not supposed to be an instruction manual and all that stuff, right? So we do know that they're being trained to view citizens as the enemy. Uh, they're being told to stand down in certain situations. Uh, they have, according to the Supreme Court, no duty to actually protect and serve. So really what we're living in is this fake reality where people think the police is one thing, but they really are not. Right. So at this stage, for me, they primarily seem like a standing army. But I will say, um, despite the place where I got arrested in New Hampshire, I do think that the police here are fairly professional uh, in the sense that, in the dangerous sense of I'm just following orders, right? So we see a lot of that where they're just, uh, they're just obeying something else and, and it's problematic. I mean, one of my favorite ones, if, if we talk about privacy and surveillance is people be like, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. And I'm like, you do know that is literally a quote from Goebbels, the minister of propaganda of the Nazi party. So once people, you know, start quoting Nazis at me, I'm like, yeah, okay. Okay, maybe that's not the way we want to go. So I think that there's opportunities. I know, for example, um, when we had Porkfest, um, 
you know, a couple of weeks ago, I, um, one of the events we did was on the Saturdays, I invited everyone from the reopen rallies that have been going on to kind of bring them out because I'm really interested in building coalitions and allies and, you know, growing the group and really truly saying, you know, we're, we all stand together on these issues. Let's work together. Um, and so tongue in cheek, because we always and have had for 10 years, a pig roast right after that event, we, uh, I said, you know, we're having a big luau pig roast and uh hawaiian shirts optional right so i literally was making a joke about something i don't really even understand but i saw enough internet memes to be like this seems funny i'm just gonna go with this so around the wednesday of pork fest this event was going to happen on the saturday the wednesday uh the property owner comes to me and he's like so the police have said uh there's a flag on the screen and i was like there's a flag on the screen. Like, what does that even mean? And I was like, what screen? Like what flag? Like what, you know? So, so they were like something popped up in their notifications. And so eventually I was just like, Crosby, I don't know what you're saying to me. How about you just tell the police chief, I will come in and I will sit down with him and he can just ask me whatever he needs to know. Like, I don't understand why we're playing, you know, different groups here. I'm not scared of him. He can look me in the eyes. It's all good, right? And so we did that. So I was like, oh, I had my police parlay at, you know, Pork Fest. And I went in. My husband came with me. He very sweetly wore his, you know, Carla for Senate T-shirt. The county attorney was there. The police chief was there. We were all armed. It was very New Hampshire. And he was just like, oh, so something popped up that, you know, and they wouldn't actually answer my questions in the sense that I was like, is it the ATF? Is it the FBI? Like who's flag on what screen? Like what? And as far as I could figure out, it was because I created a separate event and I made it open to the public to allow the the other groups to come in. And their main concern was, um, was, okay, but you guys do what you do over there and we don't care and we don't come in and we've had that arrangement for a long time and that is uniquely, awesomely New Hampshire. Um, he was like, but don't bring your, don't bring your trouble downtown now, Missy, you know? And I was kind of like, yeah, I'm not going to bring any trouble downtown. We will stay where we are. And it was just, you know, it was, it was, I think it was a positive step in the sense that, you know, we did just have that conversation and it was a learning experience for me because for so many years when I've done police accountability work, Um, you know, there's a lot of like, oh, cops are this, or, you know, there's a lot of collectivization that actually takes place from our side as well. And I'm really trying to internalize this notion of everyone's an individual. I'm going to sit down with that police chief. And I've done it in the past. I show up and I'm like, hi, I'm Carla. I want to, you know, look you in the eyes and I want to like, what are we doing here? Because then it's also, you know, they want to be like, oh, the free staters are trouble. And we're like the, the cops are, you know, horrible monsters. And it's like, well, the twain is somewhere in the middle of all of that. So I think that, um, we should, allow more competition. I think we should be union busting. I mean, I would love to see New Hampshire become a right to work state. Uh, That's one of those left wing, lots of monies come in to fight us. I mean, we've tried and tried and tried and tried. Um, But, you know, our our opposition is actually pretty uh, 
well-funded at this stage. And so, um, you know, uh, here in in Croydon, New Hampshire, which is a little, uh, you asked at the start of this, you know, are there pockets where lots of people move? I mean, primarily people move to New Ham- uh, to Manchester first and just use that as a launching pad. But there's a small town uh, where our besties live uh, called Croydon, New Hampshire, uh, you know, the, 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 there's Bardo Farm. It's an off-the-grid farm. They supply most of the meat for all the free staters. Uh, we're not concerned about meat shortages. All of us know where our food comes from. We know there's water. Like, we can survive. Like, if things really go to hell in a handbasket, we're good to go because our lives didn't really change that much. But this little town of Croydon um, fought a really big school choice lawsuit and won. And in February this year, they defunded their one-man police department where the guy was in such a huff that he literally disrobed in the alderman meeting and put his gun and his uniform down and walked, started walking home in a winter New Hampshire night in his skivvies. And I was like, well, that's how we defund our police up here. That's New Hampshire for you. Um, (laughs) So it's weird because I I do know there are, like you said, the cops are individuals just like anyone else. And there are a couple primarily older cops that I know who kind of still think of themselves as like, I'm trying to uphold the Constitution and and be fair and do my job and and are less likely to to just, uh, you know, we we read this book recently called or uh, in our book club called Ordinary Men about uh, the police battalion 101 in in Germany that was stationed in Poland that just obeyed orders and killed Jews because that was the, you know, well, that's the order. Uh, And, um, you know, I know there are not all cops would would do that. Not all cops are just the following orders. But I I definitely do think that the good ones are either leaving, have left or seriously consider leaving at this point, Uh, which does kind of beg the question of like, okay, well, what are we what are they? You know, they are the standing army for the opposition because the opposition is taking over the government. So they are kind of the standing army. Um, and another issue that you have is you get the you get the inner city police where you have, you know, you have the cities like L.A., for example. They got huge training budgets. They got the stupid tanks and the and the HRT teams and they can like do all this kind of stuff. Uh, they've got they've got the training up the wazoo that the small towns can't do. So, you know, the guys, they go in there uh, because they're from the inner the, the we'll say the urban centers. They tend to be much more leftist, the cops themselves. Right. So they go in. They get all that training, and then they and then they retire to a smaller town, maybe in New Hampshire, where uh, the cost of living is less, and the town welcomes them because they couldn't afford a cop trained that well, right? So they come in, but they bring with them all of this, like, uh, they distrust you because you're wearing a firearm, because that's not a normal thing, and they they have this view of the police as the authoritarians and there's not a lot of there's not a lot of room to disobey a police officer or there's basically nothing they can't order you to do because that's the mentality in the big city um so i it definitely is it definitely is an issue do you think that there are police allies in new hampshire uh, f- as part of the free state project or no uh police allies meaning well pro yeah, police who are like I'm, 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 a, I'm part of the Free State Project, and I'm a police officer, and I think we should secede. 
Uh, well, once you throw that third one okay, in there, can, probably let's, let's, Maybe they'll be quiet about the third one because they probably would lose they, their jobs they, if they said there are retired police officers, many of whom now serve in the legislature, who I would say are of that older school that you were talking about, sort of constitutionalists. I've, you know, I've testified in front of a lot of them, you know, so much so like where where I got ex arrested, you know, the, the one guy who was a former police officer said, oh, where did that happen? And I said, where in New Hampshire, the town? And he was like, oh, where? And they were all like, there was a known problem. I mean, I had people contacting me and being like, hey, I buy my Coke from the cops and we're New Hampshire, you know? So everyone knew. So there is this sort of silent corruption and it is that adage of, you know, uh, uh, one rotten, one spoils the bunch, right? So I don't think we have a ton of currently serving police officers who are sympathetic to us. In fact, I believe, and I'm, I'm going to try and prove this, uh, using our right to know laws and which is like FOIA, but we call them 91 A's here. Yep. Um, I think they're specifically being trained to treat us and to view us in a certain way. Um, uh, you know, uh, at this stage, I like to think if you have a porcupine on your car, we have these little porcupine magnets. I'm hopeful that's actually just a sort of like leave us alone signal so that they go, eh, these people know their rights. They're going to film me. It's going to be a pain in the ass. If I don't do everything perfectly, they will sue me. It's it's not worth it. And just let us be, right? right. So that even that culturally will be a step in the right direction, I think, for free staters in general. Um, I do think they're... they're um, I do think your concerns are all legitimate. I mean, I do think we have a problem nationwide. Um, here in New Hampshire, though, I think our saving grace is that people really do genuinely still uh, exercise our Second Amendment rights. You know, when we did Pork Fest, I, from the start, I was like, look, I'm doing something. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm doing something, even if it's a barbecue in my backyard, you know? And from the start, I said, look, I believe, constitutionally speaking, this is a First Amendment and Second Amendment protected assembly. Now we know, you know, we have private clubs across the state, various uh, free staters uh, over the years have started places, they're membership based, you pay X amount. And it's a very laissez-faire, as you can imagine, sort of environment there. And I've always thought, wow, it's really surprising that we haven't gotten raided over the years. And I'm like, oh, I know why. Are you gonna go pick a fight you know, with with a well-armed group of people. No, we all want to go home at night, and I want police officers to be safe and go home too. But the troubling part, I think, of policing now is that militarization, and we're seeing it even here. You know, we had an incident last year or two years ago where uh, it was a drug deal that went bad. There were people shooting at the cops. There were people who shot and killed the guy who was shooting at the cops. But there were these two kids. She was 21 and he was 26. They were recently married. I assume they were just idiots doing coke in a hotel room. They were probably dealing a little bit, whatever. They, you know, they were doing what they were doing, but they weren't putting my life at risk. And they frankly weren't putting anyone else's life at risk. They were making bad life choices. That's it. Those two died because they deployed at least 
17 tear gas canisters into their hotel room. The autopsy report, so, so the original police report actually said deployment of chemical weapons, because that is what tear gas is. And if right. you're in the military, that's the way you would describe it. Uh, when I started pointing that out, I think they went back and softened the language. But in the autopsy report where they said, well, they died of um, environment, hyperthermia and environmental factors. But I called the mother of the, the woman who died, the 21-year-old girl who died. And uh, the mom said, the, the, the uh, mortician, the autopsy person, sorry, I'm blanking, um, actually said to her, well, this is what we're going to say on the report. We're going to say it was um, a drug overdose and environmental factors and that they froze to death. She's like, but between you and I, I think it was the, the tear gas canisters. <laughs> they had like bruises and, and, you know, contusions and stuff because they were just shooting them into the room. And so, you know, New Hampshire has a homicide rate of uh, Concord, where they got the Bearcat, they had two homicides in 10 years. Um, in 2017, we had 17 homicides in the entire state, of which 25% were police officers who shot and killed someone. And I read every single report. So what I'm saying is, yes, we do have a policing problem here, and it's not just the police, but it's also the attorney general's office. And then we have this list here in New Hampshire, which is called the Lori's List. And this is a list of police officers who have had sustained findings of misconduct that their police chief has to write up after a 19-page procedure for police officers who have testified, so lied in court, used excessive force, stolen things, you know, raped people, like bad stuff. These are not the people you want to be enforcing your laws. There are 260 names on that list. About four years ago, three years ago, the newspapers used our 91A, our open government uh, procedure, and they said, we want to see this list. The AG's office gave the police department, uh, gave uh, the newspapers the list with all the information redacted. So the names of the officers, all you could tell is what town it was and what they did. So you could see Salem, New Hampshire, excessive force. That was it. I begged the newspapers at the time. I was like, print that in your Sunday paper so that people sit at home and see what your government thinks you're allowed to know about people who are if they weren't police officers, would probably be criminals right. <laughs> because that's criminal behavior. A judge in 2019, April last year, the, the, so the newspaper sued. They took it to court. It uh, it went to the, uh, it's not at the Supreme Court yet. I think it was one under that, the district court. And they, uh, the, the Judge Temple said, of course, this information is in the public interest. Of course, it should be made public. No, it is not an exception to the 91A, and you need to release the list. We were like, yay. Of course, I was like, ha, huh, someone's going to appeal this because they're all dirty, dirty, dirty. Right. So I filed a 91A between the day the court case came out and three days later when they filed the appeal. I was like, ah, oh, I'm going to Shanghai this. They didn't fall for it. They told me to go pound sand, but I did try. And um, 
So now they've appealed it because of all the BLM stuff that's going on and because of the defund the police and sort of this appetite suddenly for things that, quite frankly, we as libertarians have been saying for decades. Right. You know, someone asked me, why aren't I why, why I'm not actively out at the BLM stuff? And mostly because I'm busy and, you know, they have enough traction. But I'm like, where was everyone when I was doing this 10 years ago? Like, we don't have to be out there with them. We were out there. Everyone else is kind of coming along, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. Governor Sununu just said he just put together a task force. It has 15 people on it, of which I think 10 or 11 are law enforcement. And now they're going to work on releasing the list. I'm not holding my breath, literally, because, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be what I want it to be. But at least people are talking about the issue. Right, right. And the BLM protests, frankly, don't seem to be about police brutality anymore. They seem to be about something entirely different anyway. But yeah, and and you know. and, you know, and I mean, I looked at the, the money that's going in, that money's being passed straight through to the Democratic Party. Right, right. Um, so I, I guess uh, a couple a couple of quick questions. Uh, I know we should probably wrap up soon because we're but, but there's a few things I still want to ask you. One is, do you know, uh, Roughly how many people have moved to New Hampshire under the Free State Project umbrella in the last decade or 15 years or however long it's been? Yeah, so depending on who you ask, which number, it's uh, we say there are about 5,000 free staters in the state. That does include people who are locals who are like, we love what you're doing. And so you're an ally, you know, they sign up as a friend and now we count them as a free stater. About, I think it's about I mean, it's not a lot. It's about 3,000 who've actually moved. But I think part of what we're doing is we're awakening this sleeping giant uh, that's in the state. I had a very interesting meeting with uh, the head of the NHGOP here, and he said, you know, they've, they've done some data munging, and they found 175,000 Republicans that aren't voting. And, of course, I was like, excuse me? I don't think those are Republicans. I yeah. think those are libertarians or disengaged people who are just like, I can't take your crap anymore, right? Yep. But I was like, that's a solid number, right? So if we can energize those people, but you know, other people move and they don't tell us. Um, we, we have gotten about, I think it's 40, 42 people elected at this stage. We still haven't been able to like level up to the Senate level. I've been trying. Would you be the first at the Senate level if you won? Yes. Okay. So why don't we? Yeah, that's and, a good segue. Why don't we ask about your your race and uh, and how it's going? Sure. So um, I am running for office again. I, I run under the Republican ticket. In 2018, I was actually a fusion candidate, which is a libertarian Republican thing, which is also one of those like uniquely New Hampshire things. So they can write you in as long as the party has ballot access. And currently the LP doesn't have ballot access, partly because of COVID and like all the stuff. So there's shenanigans that I don't even know what's happening. But I ran originally in 2016. I ran because they called me at 3.20 on the last day of the filing. 
And they were like, oh, my God, no one is running against this guy. He's literally running unopposed in this district that is in the biggest city and the one town over, Manchester and Gosstown. Will you put your name on the ballot? And I was like, I don't know. I'm, I'm down by the lake hiking with my dog. Let me call my husband and see. <laughs> and we kind of talked it over. And I didn't want to be like, leave anyone in the lurch. So I said, sure. Then they were like, oh, but you have to go to Concord to file. And it was bike week. So, I mean, it was just dramatic like I was in my car I got there two minutes before the time was up I double parked ran in signed up so that was my first race I got 40 percent that pretty much is because less to do with me as much as I would like to say it has to do with me and that was just the Republican base those are people who mostly vote down the ticket and probably a few thousand who who like Carla right then in 2018 we did this fusion libertarian uh, uh, Republican thing. I actually had to file for a recount. I've already done a recount because they didn't count the votes. And I knew that on the write-ins based on my friends, I was like, oh, they're lying. So, you know, we went through that whole thing. And my district swung 12 to 15% measurably to the left. And I still went from 40 to 42%. So I went up two points when my district swung 12 to 15% left. I feel very good about that. I may be naive, but I feel like, hey, I didn't go down. I actually went up and there was this huge anti-Trump wave that came out, right? There was a big blue wave. Um, so I'm feeling cautiously optimistic. I do need to raise a lot of money. As I mentioned at the start of the show, uh, my opponent, you know, is an 11 term incumbent. He's 83 years old. He has a war chest of millions of dollars. You know, I think last time uh, last in 2018, he had uh, $450,000 and I had $38,000, you know, so it's definitely a, a David and Goliath thing. Right. But I think people know me better now. People know more about my positions. And one of the things I'm really proud of is I, you know, I'm a personable person and I feel like I can explain these ideas fairly cogently in a way that it becomes um, accessible to people. Because I think a lot of times it just sounds scary, but I'm at the stage if we just went back to I don't know. Not, I mean, honestly, if we went back to 1984, we'd probably be in better shape. Yes. You know, in terms of regulations and right. overall. I probably wouldn't pick that year yeah. aesthetically as the year to be saying. Uh, it, right. <laughs> but, but yes, yeah, that probably symbolically it's a bad year. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Even yeah, if we reround to, to when a lot of people were younger and they stuff that they remember, it, it would be it would be better. Well, the last the last thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, was your book. So, um, can you tell us about Ecstatic Pessimist? Show us show us the cover. Okay, the Ecstatic Pessimist, which at the back says, "Read this book, move to New Hampshire, live free and thrive." Um, it's called. So the ecstatic pessimist is not entirely on brand for me because I'm actually an ecstatic optimist. Uh, but some of these contain older stories and the rational optimist was actually taken. Um, so it is a collection of work. Um, and I have a law degree, but I also have a master in fine arts uh, from City College in New York. So some of these are sort of award winning short stories that I wrote when I was doing my master's. 
Uh, but there's a lot of essays about the activism that I've been doing over the years here in New Hampshire. And it is, you know, it is quite telling to sort of see how it went, you know, from, oh, there was a school lockdown and we should be concerned about this to, you know, a streetwide lockdown, to a block lockdown, to a neighborhood lockdown, to a city lockdown, to a state lockdown, you know, sort of that progression so I feel in some ways that it, you know, sort of vindicates a lot of our positions. I have a, a currently an active podcast, but coming back soon called Told You So. And it's a little bit like I feel like as libertarians, we should be telling people, but hey, we've been telling you this forever. Why don't you guys listen to us? Yeah. So um, yeah. I'm very proud of it. It is uh, currently on Amazon. People, it, There's a Kindle version. There's a Kindle unlimited version for people, but please buy the paperback if you can. Uh, Nick Gillespie from Reason Magazine uh, reviewed it, and he said it is a fantastic package of writings that veer from fiction to autobiography and memoir to political polemics. It's great. It mixes stories about substance abuse, lack of focus, historical wrongs, and a utopian attempt to remake the world as a better place in a very pragmatic way. I highly recommend The Ecstatic Pessimist. So everyone should buy it. <laughs> it sounds a little bit um, like the female version of PJ O'Rourke. You know, I um, I actually said PJ because he lives up here in good old New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, I I emailed him last week and I was like, PJ, I want to send you my book. Where can I send it? Um, so hopefully he will respond to that. Um, yeah, I you know I'm actually that's funny you say that because this is literally lying right here on my desk. <laughs> Uh, don't vote. It just encourages the bastards. But, you know, he's getting old. He did a one of those COVID Zoom happy hour things uh, that I jumped in on a few weeks ago. And he was like, you know, I'm 72. I smoke. I drink. I haven't left the house in four months. You know, he was just kind of... Um, he originally was not a fan of the FSP, but I'm trying to win him over. And I genuinely hope that this is the connection there because he is getting older. We need a new voice. I think I can be that voice. I'd rather be an author than a senator, but I will do both if I have to. <laughs> yeah. And and that's pretty much my story. Well, Carla, uh, I really appreciate it. Remind people where they can go to find out more about you, more about the book and more about the Free State Project. Sure. So Free State Project, of course, is uh, fsp.org. And you from there can find Porkfest and Liberty Forum and all that information. For me, you can actually go to my website, carlagarrick.com. So that's uh, C-A-R-L-A-G-E-R-I-C-K-E.com. Uh, I blog frequently. I do a weekly show called Manch Talk TV. I have my podcast. I write essays. I make people very mad on Facebook. I don't really play on Twitter, but apparently I'm going to have to get into that game. I think it's going to be toxic and awful, but maybe a new book will come out of it. Um, so, yeah, I just encourage people who listen to this and hear about this, explore us. We're building a really, really cool community here. I do think we can make this change here. I'm also not, I'm like, if we don't do it here, where is it going to happen? You know, like I immigrated from South Africa 25, 26 years ago um, because I want a green card, but also because I was like, America, the land of opportunity. Right. I want to go live there. Right. And you know, and I feel like I, I, I'm not going back to South Africa. 
uh, you know, uh, someplace in South America, my Spanish is not very good. Um, you know, so if we don't do it here, if we don't create one bastion of freedom for people to understand these ideas will lead to peace, they will lead to prosperity, and they will lead to a better life and a better quality of living for everyone, then, you know, where are we going to do it? So as I said earlier, I need reinforcements, we need allies, we need funding, we need all of that stuff. If you can't move, give the Free State Project money or donate to my Senate race and, and let me be your voice. Well, thank you. I, we, I think uh, everyone would totally agree with you, uh, at least everyone that watches this show, that if, there's, if liberty is going to survive somewhere, it's going to be the U.S. So uh, there's no place else in the world where you're going to be able to get a, a concentration of people that are individualists to, to vote that way and try and build that society. So again, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us, Carla. Thank you for having me. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Please avoid any contact with these individuals. I have calculated a 97.8% chance that these are all rushing bots. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Social justice is a healthy way to experience feelings of moral superiority. That last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.